Welcome to episode 30, which I've titled um, the biographical novel, Who Cares? I put it that way because um, I know a lot of biographers who don't have much respect for biographical novels. In some cases, because biographical novelists take the research of biographers and historians and turn it into a story, nothing wrong with that as such, but essentially ripping off the research that the biographers have spent often years amassing, and sometimes without any credit at all to the biographer. Um, this is not always the case, of course. Uh, some biographical novelists are scrupulous about citing their sources. Uh, one of them is Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, in her novel Blonde, she cites a number of books, including my biography of Marilyn Monroe, uh, as uh, works that she drew on for her portrait. A very different point of view, um, and this is what gets us going, that is us biographers, was the tack that Susan Sontag took in her, um, you could call it a biographical novel, In America. I'm reading from a few paragraphs from the biography, Susan Sontag, The Making of an Icon, revised and expanded, that my wife Lisa Paddock and I wrote, and that was uh, published in 2017, uh, 17 years after the original first edition. It has a lot of new material, including what I'm reading now. There was an article in the uh, New York Times on May 27, 2000, titled, So Whose Words Are They?, in which she described Ellen Lee's discovery of 12 passages in Sontag's novel in America, culled from four books about Helena Mojeska. This is the main character uh, called Marina in Sontag's novel, uh, Polish actress, 19th century actress. All these passages were appropriated without acknowledgement. Some borrowings reflect the tone of Sontag's sources, but in some instances, Sontag had lifted material almost verbatim. Sontag argued that she had utterly transformed her sources. How could that be, since she was using the language of others? Uh, Russell Banks is quoted in this article, author of Cloud Splitter, a well-received novel about John Brown. He's quoted as saying, If I have taken language from elsewhere, I feel obligated to make that evident. Thomas Mallon, another historical novelist, concurred. He said, Novelists should go to scholars for information, not for language. And then I continue, my wife and I continue, but Sontag contended that scholars were not writers and therefore were fair game for the novelist. Novelist Thomas Dish took a more cynical view in, uh, this is a program he called Sermonettes, his weekly WNYC broadcast. He says, she, that is Sontag, has had the modesty not to make the usual claim of the plagiarist who gets caught that he or she had confused his or her notes with his or her original work. That always registers as a lame excuse, so why bother? Better to just brazen it out, as Sontag has done. And it works. Already she's received an award for best novel of the year. End of quote. 
and the controversy continued in various articles and letters. Uh, Sontag herself said uh, historians like uh, Ms. Lee, who first, uh, objected to these passages lifted from her work, uh, historians like Lee should be thrilled because Sontag had turned an obscure actress into a marvelous person. The real Mojeska was a horrible racist, Sontag says. As Margot Jefferson commented in an article she wrote, let artistic gray areas be as long as truth is out. This was in the New York Times, June 12, 2000. Jefferson says, I would much rather uh, read about a woman of great talent and charisma, a marvelous creature indeed, who was also a woman with monstrous beliefs. I want to feel and understand all of this. I don't want things to be prettified and simplified in the name of literary uplift. Well, that is what sometimes what you get in biographical novels, a sort of literary uplift. I should say, by the way, that uh, I'm going to be reviewing uh, Jerome Charon's novel, Sergeant Salinger, about uh, J.D. Salinger, uh, and also Connie Pullman's novel, uh, both of these books will appear um, in early January. Connie Palman's Your Story, My Story, which is her biographical novel about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. I'll be reviewing both of those on the website of uh, Simply Charlie. I've reviewed other uh, biographical novels, uh, and I want to um, deal with three books, or three authors rather, in particular, well, actually four, um, who have written biographical novels. I don't take an absolutist position on them. That is, I'm not against them per se, or in theory, you might say. Uh, but what often happens uh, is um, what I consider to be an unhappy result. Um, you'll see the implications of my argument. I'm going to read um, a review of... Um, Paula McLean's Love and Ruin, uh, which is a biographical novel about Martha Gellhorn. Um, I reviewed this in the New Criterion. And like uh, many reviewers, I begin just telling you a little bit about the subject of the biographical novel, just the way reviewers do in subjects of biography. Martha Gellhorn, one of the 20th century's celebrated war correspondents, a novelist and short story writer, a political activist, and Ernest Hemingway's third wife, the only one who left him, has been an important figure in many biographies and histories, all of which she is, uh, all of which uh, she is attacked or ignored. She despised biography, that is, the biographies and histories, even in fiction, um, she's a reluctant witness to her life, going on page after page about her deepest feelings, especially about Ernest Hemingway. This is what happens in McLean's novel. Um, Hemingway, she grew to loathe. What kind of biographical novel, is my question, could do justice to such a recalcitrant and reticent subject. She was on record, not only in attacking my biography of her, the first one that was written while she was alive, 
but her friends also went on the attack against my second biography. Paula McLean does have a note on sources. Uh, she states, My Gellhorn isn't the Gellhorn, for how could she be? That woman is a mystery, the way we're all mysteries to our friends and family and loved ones, and even to ourselves. That's McLean. So what is the point of biographical fiction is my question. McLean never really makes a convincing case, so let me help her out. A novelist can try to write in the subject's voice in a way a biographer dare not. A novelist can probe areas of a subject's life for which there is spotty evidence, or none at all, but which can be imagined given what is known about the subject. In Blonde, for example, Joyce Carol Oates presents the harrowing aspects of Marilyn Monroe's childhood in dramatic scenes that no biographer can rival. A biographical novel may also speculate and invent characters, providing a new way to assess events that might inspire biographers and historians to think anew about the evidence they have accumulated. What else? Well, that should be the point of biographical fiction, showing how what we know from reading the biographies and histories is not enough. In short, the biographical novelist can actually deepen the mystery, showing the inadequacy of the documented record and uh, what has been made of that record. McLean's novel is a failure in all of the, on all of these counts and more. And the failure is not hers alone. Like most biographical novelists, she relies on secondary sources. In other words, what she has read, and uh, no matter how much she has read, it's pre-filtered. Her note on sources reveals she has done no archival work. Even Gellhorn's published letters constitute a small part of her correspondence, carefully selected by her authorized biographer, and therefore suspect. The only way to do it is to look at all those letters which are in her archive. Although McLean cites Amanda Vale's brilliant Hotel Florida, which provides a very rounded portrait of Gellhorn's character, and Vale, by the way, had access to that Gellhorn archive, a very rounded portrait of Gellhorn's character, including her lively flirtation with all sorts of men, and her determined blindness to what was happening as communist thugs took over and murdered the anarchists and others supporting the Spanish Republic against Franco's forces. She was covering the Spanish Civil War, obviously. The cloying love scenes with Hemingway in Love and Ruin, that's McLean's novel, are especially hard to take since Gellhorn, by her own testimony and in Vale's research, rarely found sex satisfying. Similarly, the Gellhorn in Love and Ruined extols for whom the bell tolls, even though Gellhorn often denigrated the novel. Perhaps Gellhorn was rewriting history in this novel, erasing her earlier enthusiasm, uh, uh, which was colored by her later retrospective comments on Hemingway. But McLean's novel is also retrospective. In other words, it's not in the moment, it's Gellhorn looking back at her life. Or supposedly so. Although McLean's Gellhorn lacks the scathing, darkly humorous tone that made Gellhorn's fitful comments on her past so intriguing. 
The Gellhorn in this novel has a faux naïf voice, a willingness to talk that seems all wrong. She always presented herself as a reluctant witness to her own life. Shouldn't a novelist respect that? The prickly side of this ambitious woman's personality is almost entirely absent. McLean's Gellhorn is always well-meaning and perplexed when things go wrong. In fiction, even biographical fiction, the novelist has a right to invent, even to create a character at odds with the historical record. But that character has to be convincing in her own right. Who can believe a Martha Gellhorn who speaks like this? I'm quoting from the novel. No matter what else happened going forward, Ernest and Madrid and this awful, marvelous war were tangled up together inside me like the story of my own life. That's a quote from the novel. Remember that sentence? This part about it. No matter what else happened going forward, I can't imagine Martha Gilhorn writing that or thinking that. Going forward? That redundant expression that we hear every day now does not belong in this novel, reminding us not of Martha Gellhorn, but of Paula McLean. Hemingway is similarly anodized. When he gets sore about the fawning over him on his Hawaii honeymoon with Gellhorn, McLean has him say, the next person who touches me will get a sock in the nose. That's from the novel. Well, again, the next person, sock in the nose. Next person? Sock in the nose? This is Ernest Hemingway? McLean sounds like she is writing for the Hollywood production code in the 1930s. Hemingway is reported to have said that he would cool the next son of a bitch who touched him. The best writing in Love and Ruin occurs in the brief italicized passages when Hemingway's point of view is introduced. An immense relief after so much bogus first-person confessional prose. Here's an example of an italicized passage. Uh, it's in the third person, uh, but within, in a sense, Hemingway's consciousness. He hadn't always understood the thing about cats. He hadn't always understood himself either. When he was young, it had often seemed as if nearly anything could finish him off. He felt too much. That was the truth of it. He noticed too many things in people's eyes, so that even a meal with his family could make him feel split open and exposed. His parents soon guessed how it was for him because he'd not learned to hide it yet, so they couldn't help him. No one could help him until he began to learn how to seal over the wounded, flinching place inside and feel an almost surgical relief. It had taken time to learn and a lot of concentration." End of vitalized passage. Such passages are intimate, and yet still let her remove from the subject. He does not have to say what he feels, he just feels. The tell-all biogra bi uh, biographical novel seems to be a trend that has to be stopped in its tracks, if you will pardon the cliché. By saying less, these novels could accomplish more. Okay, that's a pretty negative review of a particular biographical novel. Now to another uh, example, uh, a much better novelist, David Lodge. Uh, the novel is titled A Man of Parts, and it's a novel about H.G. Wells, whose dates 
you recall, are 1866 to 1946. He died just after the Second World War. He's one of those protean modern writers who is destined to last no matter how many times critics lament his slapdash prose or deplore his involvement in dubious movements such as eugenics and Fabian socialism. Not even the ire of feminists can ultimately bring down this womanizing colossus of concepts and causes and books, more than a hundred of them, not to mention the biographies and critical studies that continue to pullulate around this seminal figure. Wells was truly a breathtaking writer. Again, I'm sort of laying out the context as I did in my review of Gellhorn. He broke into public consciousness with his early science fiction novels, The Time Machine, 1895, The Invisible Man, 1897, virtually creating a new genre of fiction. Uh, Kipps, 1905, and The History of Mr. Polly, 1910, retained their status as greatly admired comic novels. And Veronica, published in 1910, even with its flawed ending, is one of the first English novels to explore the consciousness of the new woman and is still in print. The heavily autobiographical Tono Bungay, published in 1909, Wells's bid to be taken seriously not only for his subject matter but his style, has its place in the history of the English novel and on college syllabi. His experiment in biography, published in 1934, and a posthumous volume, published as H.G. Wells in Love in 1984, set a new standard for candor in discussing both his public and private life. His outline of history, 1920, Little Read Today, nevertheless had an enormous impact on the reading public and became a staple of household libraries, making world history a popular form of study. Thus, there will always be more to say about H.G. Wells because he was a writer who always had more to say. Traveling the world as a journalist, interviewing Theodore Roosevelt and Lenin, for example, as well as reporting on the establishment of the League of Nations and many other political events. No writer today could possibly command this kind of attention or stand to thwart so many different public venues while carrying on such a provocative private life that included affairs with young women who were part of what was called the Fabian Nursery, as well as with writers as diverse as Dorothy Richardson, Elizabeth von Arnhem, and Rebecca West, not to mention birth control advocate Margaret Sanger. Okay, that's a lot of background. But it's one of the things you have to consider about biographical novels. It's what what uh, critics often uh, level against docudramas. What's true and what isn't? And what if the viewer or the reader is not well-informed and doesn't know all these things? How to evaluate, how to assess a biographical novel? I go on to say, not surprising then that David Lodge, already the author of a novel about Henry James, should want to have a go at Wells. In many ways, James's counterweight. Wells preferred the straightforward declarative sentence to meandering paragraphs swathed in subordinate clauses, to paraphrase Rebecca West's study of Henry James, 1918. Wells wanted the novel to be a shaper of public events, not a pristine art object. As a biographer of Rebecca West, West um, Wells's most significant lover, I was keen indeed to see what Lodge made of the evidence and commentary amassed by so many critics, scholars, and biographers. What can a novel, a biographical fiction, reveal that these non-fictional narratives and analyses cannot? In Lodge's case, he hampers the novelist's advantages over the biographer by deciding to adhere to the documentary record. 
citing biographies and studies of Wells, West, and other figures in his acknowledgments, as well as confessing where he has made up letters when the evidence is unavailable. In other words, rather than boldly use all of the novelist's resources, he relies slavishly on what Wells and others wrote in order to bootleg their authentic voices into a novel that sounds, often sounds, just like another biography. Rather than using the creative power of a novel to challenge received accounts, to provide an alternative history, so to speak, he does a sort of mashup of the available sources, using only one technique, the invented interview, to catapult his narrative into territory biographers cannot tread without accusations of excessive speculation. But these interludes of interviews are ultimately unsatisfactory because we learn nothing about the interviewer, and Wells is allowed to back away in rationalizations of his behavior. The interviewer might as well be any reporter or biographer about whom we know nothing. Novelists are not supposed to rely on a first-person narrator or narrators and interviewers about whom we cannot form an opinion. The raison d'etre of the novel, at least of a modern novel, is precisely to question the teller of the tale because achieving a trustworthy point of view has become a problematic enterprise. And it gets worse for Lodge when he simply relies on the testimony of Rebecca West, whose ten-year affair with Wells is given full play and who returns at the end of Wells's life to provide the coda to his biography. Again, Lodge is faithful to the documentary record, but his novel never questions West's veracity. Lodge takes her at her word in a way no biographer can afford to do. To say that she was a liar is not quite the point. Let's just say she loved to stretch the truth through the wonderful kaleidoscope of her imagination, transforming life into a grand drama. Her husband, Henry Andrews, once cautioned her, Rebecca, you're making a scene, to which she replied, me making a scene? To put it baldly, she did not seem to realize when her powerful repertorial gifts were overwhelmed by need to bend reality to her interpretation of it. I try to convey this in my biography while staying within the evidence. And what I'm suggesting is that Lodge, in a biographical novel, is actually doing less than a biographer can accomplish. As I go on to say, no inkling of this side of West, surely fertile ground for a novelist, intrudes into Lodge's sedate novel. What went on inside West and Wells remains inaccessible in this novel, as in a biographer. biography. Lodge does occasionally get a little more intimate, as in this scene when Wells, approaching 80, tells West he does not want to die. I'm quoting from the novel. A tear trickles down, tr uh, sorry, a tear trickles from one eye down his cheek and loses itself from the roots of the mustache, now gray and rather straggling, with which in his prime he would tickle intimate parts of her anatomy. That's, I think, part of what readers of biographical novels go for, since biographers, by and large, cannot get into the bedroom. There are exceptions. In my William Faulkner biography, in the second volume, I do get into the bedroom. How that happens? Well, you'll have to read the second volume. As the biographer of Martha Gellhorn, I confess a deep disappointment that she does not appear in this novel, Wells included her as one of his enamoratas in a volume of his autobiography he intended for posthumous publication. 
Gellhorn threatened G.P. Wells, H.G.'s son, with legal action if her name should appear in what became H.G. Wells in Love, and so a compliant G.P. boulderized his father's book. Gellhorn, like other ambitious young women writers, got to know the world-famous author, stayed in his London home, and allowed him to guide through to publication one of her books. But she vociferously denied his sexual liaison and treated Wells's account of their love affair as the fantasy of a doddering old man, wanting to boast one more time of his conquests. I never detected anything in Wells's behavior to justify her scornful rejection of his account. He did not boast about his passades, as he called them, or make them up. He did not need to. Here, then, it seems to me, we have the very case for a novelist to pursue creating a definitive portrayal in fiction that is there for a biographer to envy. To put it another way, what we look to in a novel is the deepest possible exploration of personhood. As wonderful as any biography might be in terms of its narrative scope and the biographer's access to intimate materials, only the novelist has the license to go beyond the facts, the testimony, the documents, and move into the bedroom and the brain, the heart, and the soul of his characters so that his work stands by itself instead of on a heap of evidence. Okay, there are a couple reviews of two biographical novels. Um, uh, neither one is quite satisfactory, as I'm suggesting. Um, much earlier, uh, around 2004, uh, I wrote a, view, a review of a couple more biographical novels, and this review is going to end on a positive note, uh, and something I hope my fellow biographers will think about uh, when assessing uh, the nature of biographical novels. It begins, I begin, why read fictionalized biographies, or watch docudramas for that matter? Readers and viewers are disturbed when fiction melds with fact. What to trust? I asked this question myself when I read Jerry Stahl's I Fatty, an engaging effort to recreate the rise and fall of Roscoe Arbuckle, one of Hollywood's greatest filmmakers, a term I choose deliberately because Arbuckle did much more than play the funny fat guy. He wrote and directed as well. In the novel, Arbuckle takes credit for introducing Buster Keaton to the cinematic art. Is this fatty, the unreliable narrator, making more of his influence than the facts warrant? Is this Mr. Stahl, the novelist, aggrandizing his character? To satisfy my curiosity, I turned to Marion Mead's superb Buster Keaton, Cut to the Chase, a biography, published in 1995. I'm quoting her. In Keaton's career, there would be only one artistic influence, not Griffith, not Senate, not Chaplin, but Arbuckle. End of quote. Reading Ms. Mead, I saw that Mr. Stahl actually underplays Arbuckle's violent temper, or is the character who, like every autobiographer, uh, is it the character who cannot see how his story conceals as much as it reveals? Similarly, is it the bulky Arbuckle, he weighed close to 300 pounds, 
or Mr. Stahl, the novelist, who does not see that the Arbuckle scandal, he was tried three times unjustly for allegedly raping and crushing to death actress Virginia Rapp, was linked in the public mind with what Ms. Mead calls an undercurrent of kinkiness in his films. Mr. Stahl does not include Ms. Mead's work in his bibliography, so I do not know if he consulted it. It might have done him good to read sentences such as, I'm reading Mead again, a revolution in matters and morals was creating a younger generation whose behavior seemed to their parents absolutely depraved. End quote. I, Fatty, sometimes lacks social historical context, but then that is one liability of using a first-person, self-exculpating narrator. Same problem I found with Love and Ruin, the Gellhorn novel. What was said to have happened to Rap was every mother's nightmare, writes Ms. Mead, who then quotes silent screen actress Lena Basquette, only 15 when the trials commenced, Basquette said. My mother snatched the newspapers away from me. Those stories were not proper for me to read, end of quote. Like all good fictionalized biographies, Mr. Stahls makes the reader reconsider the facts and speculate about what is missing from the record. How could Arbuckle have allowed himself to become mired in such compromising circumstances? Without placing undue blame on others, the fatty of this novel shows how. He began life, in his father's eyes, as a criminal, one whose very birth ruined his mother's health. Novels and films often focus on a single traumatic event. Let's call this the Rosebud phenomenon, in honor of Citizen Kane, one of the greatest fictionalized biographies. The conceit, now I'm switching to another novel, Peter Stephen Jung's novel, The Perfect American. That's a fictionalized biography of Walt Disney, uh, who uh, comes from Marceline, Missouri. Um, there's a rosebud. The place he would imagine, reimagine in his vision of a wholesome America and recreate in nostalgic theme parks like Disneyland. That's what the novelist Peter Stephen Jung uh, is doing in his biographical novel of Disney. There is a stunning scene in Jung's novel in which Walt has to repair the Abraham Lincoln doll, I'm quoting from the novel, an electric scarecrow, much more lifelike than, say, the wax dolls at Madame Tussauds. The surface of its rubber cheeks began to sweat and glisten under the heat of the spotlight. All its limbs were movable. The head alone was able to perform 18 separate movements, the body 49, probably more than our stiffer uh, presidents can manage. That's me, uh, not the novelist. But getting back to the novel, this doll can shift its weight and coordinate gestures and sync with some of Lincoln's memorable words. I remember as a uh, kid seeing this Lincoln doll at Disneyland. I saw this automaton in action 35 years ago on a trip to Disneyland, and I did find it a marvel, much more appealing than seeing an actor play the president. Disney believed the technology could bring us nearer to the past, to the world of Marceline, where he came from, and to American values worth preserving. In the novel, he is the only one who can control the doll, which is still in development, but then it attacks Walt, and he barely escapes serious injury. 
Both the grandeur and the self-defeating aspects of Disneyism are on display. Uh, I think this is quite brilliant, what he does here in the biographical novel. Of course, no such scene took place, or at least I presume not. In this case, I did not bother to measure Mr. Jung's fiction against the facts. The book is narrated by Wilhelm Dantin, a disgruntled ex-employee whose life is, he believes, ruined and repossessed by Uncle Walt, who has, he says, taken credit for all the drawings and scripts and even ideas that animators like Dantine, Disney like to call them Imagineers, created. So again, we have the problem of an unreliable narrator. But to me, this novel seems to be about the metaphorical nature of Disney. It is not so much an effort to fill in the gaps in the Disney biographies or to dramatize what is already known about Disney's life. Several years ago, I reviewed Mr. Jung's innovative biography of Franz Werfel, the Austrian author of the Song of Bernadette, who was also a Hollywood denizen. The book had an interesting method. At the end of each chapter, italicized passages, written in the present tense, showed the biographer interacting with his interviewees, listening to their contradictory or incomplete stories, and marking the changes in time, comparing Prague and Vienna of the 1990s with those of 40 years earlier. In such passages, the biographer dramatized biography as a work of history, while at the same time identifying the gaps in his knowledge, the areas closed to his investigation, the moments when one interview faltered, the occasions when another interview elicited an energetic, almost hectic counterpoint to the calm, well-ordered narrative of the chapters themselves. Well, back to the Disney biographical novel. Wilhelm Dantin, this Imagineer, does much the same in this novel, except that unlike Mr. Junk, the biographer, Dantin is freer to imagine scenes that others have told him about. In Dantin's hands, biography also becomes an act of revenge, demonstrating that animosity can yield truths just as important as those brought about by the biographer's empathy for his subject. William Dantine, initials W.D., becomes his subject's alter ego, the Hyde to W.D., Walt Disney's Jekyll. Many readers remain skeptical of fictionalized biography, or you can call them biographical novels. After Robert Penn Warren sent William Faulkner All the King's Men, based on Huey Long's life, the latter replied that Warren should have thrown it away, except for the novel within a novel, The Haunting Story of Cass Mastern, an entirely fictional creation who is the subject of Jack Burden's doctoral thesis. Burden is the narrator. Faulkner believed that including historical figures, or even characters drawn on such figures, debased fiction. So it's not just biographers who are the enemy of biographical novels. Some novelists are too. After all, you can quarrel with Warren's interpretation of Huey Long, but no one other than Faulkner can be an authority on the Snopes family. In the historical novel, uh, George Lukash argued that Sir Walter Scott's novels solved the kind of problem Faulkner identified by making major historical figures minor characters, while using minor or invented historical figures as major characters. Thus, Scott could provide a narrative of the period, 
explaining the context in which its principal actors appeared, without hazarding examination of, for example, James Stewart, pretender to the throne of England, who was given a minimal number of words to speak in a novel like Red Gauntlet, published in uh, 1824. Writers with less reverence for history, who see history as a kind of fiction, or who see fiction as the supreme creation capable of subsuming facts for a higher truth, might side with E.L. Doctorow, who, when asked if Emma Goldman and Evelyn Nesbitt ever met, as they do in ragtime, replied, they have now. A less playful writer than Mr. Doctorow might have handled the question differently and said, look it up. For more interest, uh, far more interesting to me is the interplay between biography and the novel. It is a two-way street, you know. When New Republic reviewer Lee Siegel observed that Joyce Carol Oates's blonde was indebted to my biography of Marilyn Monroe, I turned to Ms. Oates's pages to see if she mentioned me. Indeed, she did. Like Jerry Stahl, she appends a bibliography and a commentary on her novel. Her way of integrating Monroe's movies as events in her biography and her dramatization of Monroe's acting, not so much as an expression of her subject's personality, but an active shaper of it, agreed with my reading of Monroe's life. I also saw that in at least one respect, Ms. Oates has surpassed me. Her evocation of Monroe's childhood is haunting. The novelist creates scenes, more than could be done with fact alone, in which Monroe's harrowing encounters with her violently unstable mother create a disequilibrium. If I were to write my biography of Monroe again, I know that the level of my engagement with Monroe's childhood would be much greater because I have read Ms. Oates. This is pertinent to the point that Mr. Stahl, the biographical novelist of Fatty Arbuckle, it's, it's pertinent to the point that Mr. Stahl makes about his character's childhood in I, Fatty. It is not insignificant that the title of his novel evokes I, Claudius, one of the greatest of fictionalized biographies. Mr. Stahl, by having Arbuckle tell his own story, and Mr. Junk, by injecting a new voice into the Disney saga, emphasize the truth of the truism, that biography is never the whole story, but then neither is the novel. You need one to complement the other. Thanks for listening.